Well, hey, fans of biblical genetics, thank you for tuning in to today's episode, Epigenetics versus Darwin. I'm going to resurrect an old article I wrote about nine years ago called Darwin's Lamarckism Vindicated, and I'm going to be talking about a brand new subject, a new field that's been slow walked through the halls of science called epigenetics. And this is just ideas that are above the genome, things that affect which genes are turned on and turned off, things that affect um, the way you look, the way you act, things that just aren't quite expected in the neo-Darwinian model. It's kind of a cool, fun topic because it really throws a monkey wrench into the idea that your genes equal who you are or that selection on DNA will affect evolution over the long term. If there are traits that aren't affected by your DNA, then what's natural selection supposed to act upon? That's a very intriguing question. How clear is the signal is a very intriguing question because unless it's a very clear signal, natural selection gets really muddy. And the less clear the signal is, the more distance between the DNA and the individual, the harder it is to imagine a world in which natural selection drives evolution forward. It was actually hard for me to decide upon a topic this week because I have been knee deep in several different projects. Each one of them I thought was going to absorb a lot of time, but then something got in the way and took over. The first one was a database that I found on David Reich's lab at Harvard. Uh, he and his people, they have accumulated several thousand ancient genomes and several thousand modern individuals. And they have typed them on a SNP chip, which I described in an earlier episode if you want to tune into that one. Episodes number two and three. Episode three was the mystery of personal ancestry, and episode two was the mystery of gene sequencing. So if you want to dig down into the archives, you can find out more information there. But for these purposes, what they did is they took all these individuals and they only looked at single letters in their genome, but 1.2 million letters in their genomes. And so I'm going through these, looking at the ancient individuals, which also have a carbon date. So even though I don't necessarily agree with the absolute dates that they give, I do understand there's a general order here, and older carbon dates really are older samples. So I order them according to time, and I'm looking at the most ancient people compared to the modern people, I'm looking for chunks of DNA that they share, because those ancient people are our ancestors, and some of them are more ancestral than others. So interesting questions, but then... Science Magazine came out with a set of about seven papers. It was the summary of a massive uh, decade-long project looking at genetic expression. I'm going to have to do a whole show on this, but I'm going to have to write an article first for creation.com just to summarize these results. What they did was they looked at RNA expression in different tissue types and cadavers. So people who were tissue or organ donors, they went as soon as a person died and they sampled several regions of their brain, their liver, their kidneys, their skin, their eyes, their tongue, you know, all different organs in the body. And they looked at what RNAs were being produced. And then they looked at what the letters in the DNA were and which DNA letters were affecting the RNA letters. And it was amazing because way back at the turn of the millennium, the Human Genome Project was nearly finished and they were promising they were going to cure human diseases. They were promising they were going to know how the human genome works and none of those promises came true. And now nearly 20 years later, we're finally figuring out how the human genome works, but it's taken many millions of dollars and many more experiments to get there. So that was my next big research thing that supplanted the first one, but then something else happened. Just last week, last Monday or Tuesday, uh, Dr. Yan, who is a Chinese dissident who's been making the talk show circuits, she has claiming for a long time the Chinese government has manufactured COVID-19. Well, she finally came out with a paper documenting the changes 
and she listed a theoretical recipe or a, a formula they could have followed to do exactly what she's claiming. And she said, using nothing but standard laboratory techniques, it would take about six months to do this. Well, those claims are pretty incredible. And so a lot of people writing me, a lot of my colleagues were writing back and forth, asking questions about it to each other. And I ended up spending four days from seven in the morning until 11 at night doing nothing but aligning COVID-19 genomes, plus SARS, plus MERS, plus the pangolin, uh, different coronaviruses and different families, you know, basically trying to disprove what Dr. Yan had said, but I couldn't do it. It doesn't mean that she and her team are right, but it means that I can't just say, oh, they're wrong, because everything that they said is true. There is a section of the ACE2 receptor that doesn't look like the SARS background that this gene or this DNA looks like it came from. And then within that, there's a subsection that looks very different as if it was cut out from another coronavirus and pasted into this one. Now, that would be all sorts of nefarious things about the Chinese government or maybe even the American government because we know we were working on similar experiments before we stopped it a couple of years ago. It's a very uh, messy history of science exploration here. But I want to know if it was true or not, and I can't disprove it. But I'm not going to go on public record saying I believe this thing was manufactured because you can't prove it scientifically. And I don't want to go out on a limb and, and say something silly because I know that there's been a lot of recombination in this viral family. Looking at these things, I can see that, you know, the COVID-19 in this stretch is similar to this bat coronavirus, and this other stretch is similar to SARS, and this other stretch is similar to this rat G13. There's a patchwork of relationships amongst these viruses in this family, and I can see that. And yet, there's some telltale signs that if a genetic manipulation experiment had been performed, these signs would have been left behind, and they're there also. So, let's see what the future holds here. This is very political. I don't want to get political, but I love the exploration of science, and I love genetics especially, which is why I'm doing this. And I just wanted to throw out to you some crazy things happening in my life right now before we get into our main subject. I do want to give a big shout-out to all my supporters. You people have been extremely generous, and thank you so much. To date, my costs for this show have been covered, and that's all I'm really going for. But anything extra is a blessing that's going to be turned into new paraphernalia and new gadgets and things like that. So, you know, someone did about six months ago, a little less than that, they donated to me a hundred and something dollar tripod, which I use to do this recording. Um, I've got uh, microphones, and I've got wires and connectors, and my website and the hosting fee for the podcast and all that stuff is covered because you people are wonderful. I hope God's treating you well. I hope you are being excited and encouraged about the world around you. Uh, don't be afraid to explore in science. I know that there's an awful lot of scientists who are saying God doesn't exist and you're silly for believing in creation, but it's simply not true. Now, if you don't believe in creation, understand, I do. And if you don't, that's fine with me. We can still have a conversation. You can still listen to my show because what I'm about to share with you isn't necessarily how old the earth is or when that God created. What I'm about to share with you is epigenetics versus Darwin. For this episode of Biblical Genetics, I came to Sweetwater Creek State Park. One of my favorite locations, about half an hour from my house. It's beautiful here. There's lots of hiking trails. There's some really cool Civil War ruins right over here. In fact, if you've seen any of the Hunger Games movies, uh, one scene with Jennifer Lawrence was filmed right there. 
Now, it's funny because I'm not allowed inside the gate, but they filmed inside the fenced off area. And if that's there because it's dangerous, did J-Law know that she was risking her life to film her movie? One wonders. Now, I didn't come here to talk about movie making or sci-fi or even nature, even though I did find this cool black walnut on the trail just a little ways up there. And the trees are beautiful and some rare plants here and some really cool nature. And the river is high because we just had a hurricane. Even though I'm hundreds of miles from the coast, we don't get much wind, but it sure did rain a lot the last couple of days. And so the river's really high. I want to talk about something above genetics. Yes, it's called epigenetics. Epi is a Greek word for upon or above. And something in epigenetics is something beyond the genome. These are things in the cell that affect the DNA, that affect the way the DNA is expressed, what genes are turned on, what genes are turned off. And it is a major problem for Darwinian evolution because the more complex epigenetics becomes, the less able natural selection is to find and eliminate traits in a population. We thought that you got DNA, the DNA contained the gene, the gene did something in the cell, gave you brown eyes, made you light-skinned or dark-skinned or shorter, taller, fatter, skinnier. You know, all the traits that make up all the different cool people in the world are dictated by their DNA, we thought. But the genes that are in the DNA can be turned on or turned off based on the environment. Your cell will literally tag genes with carbons, with uh, methyls. That's a carbon with three hydrogens sticking off and the fourth bond of the carbon sticks onto the DNA. And when the gene is methylated, the polymerase as it's zipping down the gene gets stuck and it can't make copies of that piece of DNA. Your cell literally turns off the gene or turns on the gene if it needs to express it. Now think about it. You don't need all your genes every day. You need some genes during development. You need some genes during puberty. You need some genes at when you're stressed or really hungry or whatever. So your body can literally toggle genes on and off by either methylating the DNA or changing the proteins that the DNA wraps around the nucleus. Now that protein is called the histone and histone acetylation is a primary means of genetic regulation in your body. The question is, can these changes be inherited? Because if they're inherited, then all of a sudden we're talking about the inheritance of acquired characteristics. That's called Lamarckian evolution. That's something that was discredited 200 years ago, except Charles Darwin believed it to his dying day. He had this idea called pangenesis. He believed that as you're exercising or thinking or, or using your eyeballs, that the different organs in your body would butt off little corpuscles that would float to the gonads and they would absorb those corpuscles and be passed on to the next generation. And he talked about this. He talked about how sailors are usually farsighted and because sightedness is easily inherited, obviously those sailors who are exercising their eyes, looking far away at, at ships and the horizon and things like that, they would have farsighted babies. But jewelers are usually nearsighted. And he figured that, well, since they're squinting so much, looking at their watches and their jewels and their jewelry and stuff like that, and their eyes are getting so used to focusing up close, Obviously, since sightedness is highly heritable, it must be passed on to the children. So there is no inheritance of acquired characteristics. And yet epigenetics might be that. But it's a little more complicated than that because you have genes that were turned on or turned off in your mother. And if your mother was exposed to some environmental stress, you know, starvation or a poison, or if she's very sick, then your genes, while you were developing as a baby, would turn on and turn off in order to respond to that environment. And it might be affecting you today. 
But it's even more than that because when a woman is pregnant with a girl, after only 22 cell divisions from fertilization, that girl's ovaries are finished and the egg cells are in place. And yeah, people are arguing now whether or not there are stem cells that can produce more eggs, but it doesn't matter. Essentially, the eggs are in place after only 22 cell divisions. So you have grandma, mom, and baby. And if that mom, maybe she's 40 years old and she ovulates and has a child, that child could be born 40 years after grandma is pregnant and the child's DNA might be affected by something that happened to grandma because mom was inside grandma and half of the baby was inside grandma too. So epigenetics can be intergenerational either through inheritance or through simply the fact that three generations can be present at the same time. And now we're talking about some factor in a child that might be expressed or not. And maybe natural selection says, I'm going to kill that child or not based on some expressed gene. But the effect was decades in the past. Natural selection can't work with that. Evolution can't work with that. The signal for selection must be clean. It must be seeable. It must be yes or no. Or Darwin's idea of natural selection completely falls apart. And that is what epigenetics does to Darwinian evolution. Hence the article I wrote about nine years ago, Darwin's Lamarckism vindicated with a question mark. And I started talking about epigenetics, but it's getting worse now, much worse, because now we know that sperm cells in the epididymis, they can absorb RNA. And there are papers with titles that use phrases like epigenetic inheritance. Wait a minute. If sperm cells absorb RNA that are coming from the body cells, that means the Weissman barrier has been broken. Now, what's the Weissman barrier? Weissman was a German scientist back in the 1800s and late contemporary of Charles Darwin. And he figured out that there are two different cell types in complex organisms. There are somatic body cells and there are germline reproductive cells. And he said there is a barrier. We call it the Weissman barrier. We now know today that germline cells, that's sperm and eggs, are partitioned from the rest of the body and they are passed on your eyeballs, your hair, your fingernail cells. Those things are not passed on, only eggs and sperm, that DNA. And it's held separate in a special place and protected from the rest of the environment on purpose. But if cells are absorbing RNA from the somatic body cells, that's epigenetic inheritance. That means that we might be a product of our environment, not just our DNA. A brand new paper just came out this week. They looked at over 23,000 humans and they looked at epigenetic modifications in those people. And what they discovered was that all people carry rare epigenetic variants that affect your genes. They turn genes on, turn genes off. Some people have the BRCA1. Some people say BRCA or BRCA, that's the breast cancer gene. Some people have a hypermethylated version of that. There are other genes that affect B12 or folate metabolism, neurodevelopmental genes. You can have a neurodevelopmental anomaly. Your nervous system can be messed up, not based on your DNA, but based on epigenetics that you might've inherited from your environment. And what's happening now is we're realizing there's not just genetic entropy, there's also epigenetic entropy. We are literally losing control of the control systems that control our DNA. And it gets worse with age and it gets worse over time in populations because these factors can be inherited from one generation to the next. This is just 
one more complexity in the genome that makes evolution according to natural selection that much more difficult to believe. If you want more information, dig into the show notes, dig into the links that I've got going back to creation.com. There's a lot of information here. If you're wondering about evolution for maybe the first time, if it's true or not, mathematically, it has massive problems and I'm happy to report that. But practically, it has massive problems also because natural selection can't work as advertised. And thank you to all my supporters who have made this show possible. Your generous contributions to the Buy Me A Coffee app has bought me many digital coffees and you're funding this project so other people can get some of this amazing information as well.